Uh, welcome to Damascus Road. If you'd open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. We've got a lot to get done today. Um, if this is your first time at our church, uh, you're in for a treat. We go uh, straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse. And if you've decided to uh, join us today, we're at a text that uh, focuses on the carving up of one manhood to the glory of God. So we'll see how well it, it does for you. We've, I like the graphics. We've kind of um, gone consistent or tried to be consistent. So I found a green army guy with a knife. And I thought that was appropriate for today's sermon. Um, but it should be interesting to see how, uh, how this applies to us. The practice of circumcision might seem somewhat archaic um, to, uh, to the world today, but it was uh, essential to Jewish identity in the Old Testament and a source of a lot of controversy in the early church, and you see that played out in the New Testament. Um, according to Romans 15.4, which I've, uh, I've read before, it says that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that includes circumcision. So through the words of Paul, and uh, God says everything in the Old Testament was written to instruct us and to strengthen our faith. So we will pray, and I've been sitting on it all week going, how are we going to do this? I'll pray though, or I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will uh, show us how we are supposed to get more from this passage than what I initially got this week was just gratefulness that I don't live in a world where they use flint knives and uh, ancient weapons for really delicate surgeries um, that we've got a little more technological advancement today. Um, but there's more to that here uh, than, than just that. Today's passage in Joshua 5, if you kind of look um, an overview of the whole, of the whole book, it is a, a transition between different divisions of the book of Joshua. And up through the first four chapters, what you've seen is a lot of prep. It's gone, it feels like kind of slow uh, to get for, you know, one of the most action-filled and brutal and violent books. It seems kind of a slow start um, and a bit delayed, but you've seen that they focused on, particularly beginning in, in Joshua chapter 1, in knowing exactly what God's Word says, um, and then following God's Word as He clearly says it, and then memorializing what He does when you follow God's Word. And so that's what has been kind of done as prep work up to this point. And this new division from about chapter 5 uh, to uh, chapter through chapter 12 is basically uh, the actual conquest and battling for the possession of the land. So for 12 chapters you'll see that, but the book is longer than 12 chapters because what you see post that is the allotment of the lands, but then the failure really of Israel to uh, complete the conquest. And that's when you get the book of Judges uh, coming in afterwards. But now at this point... They've crossed the Jordan, and they're sitting, give or take, a mere two miles away from Jericho. They're in the plains of Jericho, uh, the first city that they will conquer. And we are in the final stages of watching them prepare for what amounts to a full-out war. Um, and we see again, though, in their final prep even, right before they're about to battle, standing before the enemy who could come out and seize them, we see that the most important thing... Or the thing that God concerns himself most is not with the readiness and the sharpness of their weapons and their preparedness as an army. He's more concerned with their purity. He's more concerned with their spiritual preparation. He's more concerned with their, his relationship with his people than he is in all the things they might do. And 
right before we read here, it, it got me to think, even as I was driving in this morning, of how much time and energy and thought and resources and money and all these things we put into everything but our relationship with God. We make so many sacrifices for career, for relationships with different people, for just stuff in life. I mean, just incredible sacrifices, positioning ourselves so we can get that vacation, we can do those things, and we don't put nearly as much time and energy and even thought into our relationship with God when he, in fact, says that is actually primary to accomplish anything. And so he has not talked about battle at all. He hasn't talked about strategy at all. And this final thing, he talks about something, again, that is more concerned with the spiritual preparation of his people. So we'll start in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 5, and we'll go straight through. And here we go. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So all the kings from the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, and you'll see a lot of general terms are often used in Joshua and in the Old Testament about the Canaanites. Sometimes that is an overarching term to describe all the peoples. Sometimes God breaks it down into seven tribes, and sometimes he does it with two here. And so what he describes is the Amorites, which are mainly the peoples just on the other side of the Jordan, all the way to the Canaanites at the sea. And it's more of a holistic look at all the kings and all the land feel this way. Every king from the Jordan to the sea feels or has heard the reports of what God did to stop the Jordan while all these people walked across. It wasn't just a short term. It was a long process and their hearts have melted. And the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, from a Jewish perspective, it's often talking about the center of all that is intellect, spirit, everything, the lifeblood. So they are in despair. They are feeling threatened at their very core about what report they've heard in terms of the power of God. They are, in many ways, um, sitting as defeated enemies. Powerless, paralyzed, what have you. Now, this verse... This, this, this declaration of their hearts melting echoes exactly or very similar to what Rahab said when the spies came into Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. And she had said, again, sounds almost exactly the same, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. So now it's the Red Sea instead of the Jordan, but same idea. When you came out of Egypt, then later on it says, as soon as we heard it, speaking of the city of Jericho and all she knows, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now, she adds a little extra at the end here, which I'll read. And there is a difference between what happens to Rahab's heart when it melts, when it meets the sun, if you will, of God's word. She adds a confession at the end. It says, for the Lord your God, he is God. And in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she declares what amounts to faith. And we know later joins Israel and becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. And so what you see here is the, the truth, the fact, the reality that you probably have, ever, maybe you've seen played out. Maybe you've had this experience yourself. Where when people are confronted with the power of God, with the truth of God, with the news of what God has done, with the word of God, God himself it will have some response. It cannot 
not have a response. It will have some response, and it will be, I believe, one of two responses. And 2 Corinthians uh, 2, Paul talks about this and talking about how the gospel goes out, the news about what Jesus has done. And he's just very open to say, we have not tried to be you know, clever and creative in how we, we just preach Jesus, who he is, and what he did, the gospel, and the result is two responses. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge. So through us, as they're, they're preaching, the knowledge of God, the news of God is going everywhere. And verse 15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So there's two categories of people, and they both smell something when the news comes out. There's a stink, right? And the stink is either a good stink or a bad stink. Yet there are good stinks. I'm going to say that, right? There's a good smell, and here's what he says. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So the proclamation, the news, the report of God goes out and people either smell death or they smell life. They're either filled with faith or they're filled with fear of God in terms of their hearts melting like this. They're either encouraged by the word or they're threatened by it. Those are the only two responses. And when we read the word, when we proclaim the word... It's one thing to go, well, when I proclaim it, they don't listen, let's not believe, whatever, walk away. But when you read the word, and something you read threatens you, you should ask yourself some questions and not try to break apart and redesign and reinterpret so that it makes you feel better. The word of God is going to give or demand a response and it's either going to encourage or threaten you. It's going to lead you to the cross where you plead for mercy, or it's going to lead you to rebellion and fighting against it. Those are the only two options. And as much as people want to blame a negative response on the men who speak, or the way it's spoken, or the time in which it's spoken, that's just simply not true doesn't mean that you can't say something offensive to somebody and turn them off and they don't listen. I understand that. But nine times out of ten, that's not the case. And if you just declare the report, that's why as you look through the book of Acts, when they're preaching the gospel, just like Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, there it is. They're not being creative about it. And these these guys, these kings, hear the report. They don't see the Canaanites on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean. They don't see the army. They're not, it's not what they see. It's not the timing of the report like, gosh, I wish they weren't attacking this time of year because, man, we were so much stronger last week. That's not it. It's simply the report. It's the news itself that is offensive. It is the truth itself that is offensive. And the, the reality is they are threatened not because there's a really strong, powerful army coming. They're threatened because they know they are caught in their sin and they are going to be condemned by a God that's powerful enough to split a Jordan River who also already split the Red Sea. As the kings lay in their fetal position in their palaces, paralyzed about what to do, Jericho's looking out. They can see the army sitting there. 
And they don't do anything. They're afraid, they're afraid, whatever. And so God takes this moment to command Joshua to do some final prep, which are going to be uh, interesting and difficult for some of the guys there. Verse 2 says this, as these kings are freaking out. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And I've always wondered how loud he said that. Was that just enough for Joshua to hear? And he had to have like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Was it like, all right, circumcise. And it was like, what are you talking about? Circumcise a second time. So Joshua made flint knives, no question, and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Heroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, colon. So here's the reason. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised, during the Exodus, obviously, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them, because of that, he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land they are currently in. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, this isn't just five people, of the whole nation, of those men who had not been circumcised was finished. They remained in their places in camp until they were healed, which was probably a good three to five days, if not longer. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day, which means hill of foreskins also roll. Interesting thought. Now, it's amazing, like, Gilgal, Hill of Foreskins, why is it called that? Here you go. Because it wasn't five people, it was thousands, and that's a lot of skin. Now, circumcision had been around since the days of Abraham and prior to this, and I thought this was interesting to think about this. God didn't, although, yes, God created all things, circumcision didn't start with Abraham. Other people who were not godly were doing it. By all estimations that we would, in the same way we would just say, oh, Halloween is evil and Christmas trees are pagan, so was circumcision. Interestingly enough, you think about it. Yet God redeemed this thing and used it and set it apart to declare something, but it ultimately started before that. Side note. Now, it is, for lack of a better description and for the you know, help of us that are younger, it is the cutting off of the extra skin on a man's baby maker. There you go. That's about as simple as you can say it when your kids go, what is that? That's what it is, okay? Now, in the book of Genesis, God commanded Abraham to circumcise all the males of his family as, you know, a mark of uh, being in the family of God. And you have to ask yourself, which I do, why that? I mean, I'm surprised Abraham didn't be like, seriously? Can't we, like, you know, like cut our hair a certain way or, like, wear clothes you know, the same clothes or like put a, a fish on the back of our camel or something to declare that we're, you know, in your family. 
I mean, isn't that what Christians do? Like, you know, looking for stuff to like, you know, I've got my spirit, sprite shirt, you know, whatever you got, my Thomas Kincaid painting, whatever it is to declare that, you know, I am in love with Jesus and, and so on. But he doesn't say that. And the short answer is, I don't know, but I kind of guess. And my guess is that, among other things, what it symbolizes, I do know that this has to be a painful and permanent act. Okay? It's going to require some sacrifice. It's going to require some pain. And it's symbolized in a very real, obvious, I feel it way, separation and distinction from the world. And I know that as a guy, listening to Joshua, even at my age, which again, they would do it to a guy at my age as well, you go, I'm going to come to this decision pretty seriously. This is not going to be something I, sure, cut it up. I mean, it was like, okay, this is a serious decision. I'm making a statement. This is a commitment. I'm going in by doing this. And you also think about it, if you're going to mark a part of the body to declare such a thing, it seems like if you're going to declare that you are set apart for God, why not a part of the body that is typically involved in the world's most prevalent of sins? It's not only the source of life, but it is the source of death in our culture in a lot of ways. Death to relationships, death to a lot of things. So it begins to make a little bit of sense. But it also symbolized something else. And in Genesis 17, which we'll read, God commanded Abraham to circumcise the males as a sign of the participation in the promise that he was making to them. Here's what it says in Genesis 17, verse 7. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So this is what he's promising to Abraham hundreds of years prior to where we're at today with Joshua. It will be an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, colon, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you, he who is eight days old among you. You shall be circumcised. And every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he and who is born in your house and he who is brought with your, bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this was serious. It was the mark of the promise to Abraham, his seed, concerning the blessing and the possession of the land. And if you did not get the mark, you were rejected by God. You had broken his covenant. This was the, the core of the identity. This was a non-negotiable entrance into the family of God. That God said, you have to walk through this door or you are not part of the family. Major. And so you begin to see why it was such a conflict in the early church, especially with Jewish Christians, between Gentile, with Gentiles becoming Christians. And so, 
You have to ask, why is he doing it a second time? Well, it, it gave you explanation that there's an entire generation of people. You're dealing with two generations of people. The generation that came out of Egypt, and then the generation that was their children. And the generation that was their children had not been circumcised. Everyone who was in Egypt had been, and it came out, but the generation that was walking post that had not been. And those born in the wilderness had not been. And it had been 40 years. And <clears throat> the previous generation, side note, had been circumcised, but they, without question, did not obey. So they had the marks of religion. They had the marks of faith. They had the marks of being in the family, but they did not obey. They were faithless, and they were judged because of it. And they were wandering for 40 years. One year for every day they spied out the land in Canaan as punishment. And as a result, everyone who was 21 years or older, God waited, minus Caleb and Joshua, to die. So you have anyone 20 and younger, obviously, alive, many of whom were not circumcised. Anyone in that 40 years that was born now is not circumcised as well. We don't know exactly why they weren't. It could have been a judgment of God. It could have been their own rebellion that they just do it. But the reality is they are not part of God's covenant at this point. They are God's people. God has protected them. God has led them. But ultimately they are not participating in the covenant according to what was told to Abraham. So 40 years later, Joshua, before they live in the promises, they actually fulfill and take part in the promise that God has given them of the land and being a people. He has the wonderful, terrible, horrible privilege of circumcising people anywhere from 8 days old to 60. Ouch. Right? 8 day year old, you know, you'll forget it. The 60 year old ain't going to forget it. He's going to remember that day forever as a change in his life. And they are without question going to decide, am I going to identify myself with God fully? So what does this mean for them? Well, like I said, the word for, for the city there, the Gilgal, means hill of foreskins. It also means roll, to teach of its meaning. And God says that once it's complete, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, the reproach of Egypt was rooted in the disobedience and rebellion of the previous generation. And their rebellion in the wilderness was constant. It wasn't just the spies. That's why the, the Jews called the book of Numbers the book of rebellion. Because over and over again, God is faithful, they rebel. God is faithful, they rebel. And the rebellion that they actually speak out is fairly consistent. And the one thing that is consistent in it is what? Every time they rebel, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, where are we going? What's the one thing they always say? I'm actually asking you. What's the one thing they always want to do? Go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. Even the, it got to an extreme, and that's why I think God was so, the numbers of the spies, and what do they say in Numbers 14? Here's what they say after the report they get, right? 14, I think, verse 1. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Not the first time they've said this. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
I mean, they're ready to actually go after 40 plus years of being under God's guidance and God's protection, having food fall from the sky, they want to still go back to Egypt. And the reproach of Egypt is the reason that that rebellious spirit, that desire, the romanticizing of the old life of sin, is the very thing that God judges. Their unwillingness to follow Him, to trust Him, but to always say it was so much better when we weren't following God. That's the reproach of Egypt and the reason why they were judged. And circumcision is much more than just this physical mark. The Bible, Old Testament in particular, is, is full of comments like God saying, your, your flesh is circumcised, but your heart is not. I want you to circumcise your heart. Your ears are uncircumcised. They are not set apart. You don't listen because they are not circumcised. You are circumcised in the flesh, but yet you don't listen to what I tell you to do. The new generation, by cutting off, by having this experience, is not just rolling away the judgment that came. It is rolling away a completely entire old way of thinking, of living, and of hoping. It is a reproach of the past. It is the complete old enslavement to sin, the romanticizing of that old life that it was. It was so great, which is like it was slavery and it was death. But how often do we do that about the sin of our lives? We get governed by the reproach of our, our past. And we always are going back like, oh yeah, it was wonderful, when it wasn't. And here he says, I'm going to give you a new way of living, a new way of hoping, a new way of thinking that demands a life of active obedience. It's not just the cutting of skin, it's the cutting of an entire old life. God does not want us to live in the reproach of our past, though many of us choose to, and let it govern us, and let it be the hope like it was so much better than where we're at now. If you live in the reproach of your past, you will live a defeated life, a joyless life. I guarantee you. It's supposed to be cut off, removed, and you step forward and move forward in the glories of God, in the newness of life that He gives you. If the Jordan is a walk down the aisle, the circumcision is the vows that they're taking. Saying, I'm all in. I'm committed to you, God, until death. And we all know, if you are married, that when you actually... Anyone can walk down the aisle. But when you take those vows, you change. Whether you want to or not. And there's a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing... You can't live selfishly anymore. You can't live for yourself anymore. Sometimes those vows feel like just duty, and sometimes it is a place of desire that you want to do that. But there are vows that are taken. And obedience that is required. So what's it mean for us? Should we start circumcising everybody? You know, like, okay, it's circumcised so they show we're Christians. Obviously not. There was always a tension, though, uh, between Jewish and Gentile, between the, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And to, me, to be circumcised meant you were chosen. It was a pride that began to be lifted up in it. And the uncircumcised were the ones who were dirty and damned and they needed to stay away. And the only way that you could actually become a God-fearing Jew is you had to be circumcised. That's if you were Gentile and you wanted to be Jewish, you had to go through circumcision. But when Jesus came 
and fulfilled all the old covenant. It was done. He fulfilled it. He completed it. And later Paul ends up condemning those who are taking pride in being, well, we're circumcised. We're chosen. And he goes back to the idea of being circumcised in the heart. And that spiritual circumcision which says your marks of faith mean nothing. They mean nothing apart from Christ. And he even slammed in the Galatian church the Jewish Christians. Guys who were Jewish who became Christians started imposing upon the Gentile Christians because they weren't getting circumcised. And we like to call it the Jesus Plus program. They're like, well, you've got Jesus down, but you also still need to get these marks, otherwise you're really not part of the covenant. And Paul, gotta love Paul. Galatians 5.12, you know what he says to those guys? He pretty much says, you know the whole circumcision thing? I wish you guys would just go and cut it all off. That's the value of anything plus Jesus. Of your little fish on the back of your camel. Or whatever it is that you think, well, this is going to declare me as a Christian means nothing. Christ is all there is. And all there needs to be. And so today, being the people of God isn't about what you do or don't do. How you dress. How you speak. All those things come after, as a result of a changed heart that is saved by Jesus. If you start on the other part, where you're just trying to like, I'm going to work my way to Jesus, that's all it is, and you'll never make it. It starts with Jesus, and he says, Paul says in Ephesians 2, he makes this comparison. In speaking about post and before and after circumcision. He says, Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles, speaking of Gentiles, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he speaks about the history here. As Gentiles, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. As uncircumcised, you were strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now you're circumcised. No! But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, speaking about the church. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, not different things we do, through him, his blood, his death, his resurrection, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, so there's a shift. It's not just, well, we don't have to do circumcision. I'm saved, no problem. Just save me, Jesus, forgive me, and not to do anything. A change happens. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens within a nation, if you will. Jesus as the king saying, these are the rules, this is how you are to live as my follower, with the saints, members of the household, the family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
Colossians 2 calls this the circumcision of Christ. The same cutting off, but it's not the cutting off of skin. It's the cutting off of our old sinful flesh. And removing it never to be attached again. And as the Israelites do this, here's what they say. Now, you've got to remember where they're at. They're on the plains of Jericho, about to start a war. They pretty much have been farmers and nomads in a wilderness for a while. And now they're going against a fortress. They can see it up on the hill. And they're there being circumcised. And by doing that, they say, look, we put absolutely no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. We have no confidence in our ability to fight, no confidence in our ability to strategize, no confidence in any possibility for us winning by ourselves in all the confidence and walking in the promises of God alone. That's it. And how often do we do just the opposite again? Talking about strategy. How do I build my kingdom? How do I win? How do I defeat this sin? And we're not ever talking about our relationship with God. So as we commit, as the Israelites did, but obviously in a spiritual way, we say that we are putting absolutely no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in my ability to work. No confidence because I know the, the weaknesses of my own flesh. Declaring that there is an old life that I have cut off. There's an old life that has been buried with Jesus. I mean, have you, have you declared that? Has that actually the way it's happened for you? Where that old life is gone, dead, buried, thrown away. Because just as the circumcision of the rebellious generation meant nothing because they weren't obedient, even the circumcision of your hearts means nothing if we're not obedient. It's meaningless. Yes, you are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. But... I'll quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great theologian, died in a concentration camp. Here's what he said. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. You can't just say, well, saved by grace and not follow him. You can't just say, thanks for bringing me across the Jordan and not cut off that old life and live differently. It's not possible. Certainly you can do it. But that's the exact same thing the, the, the Israelites did in the wilderness, if that's all you do. And they were judged. That's harsh. And I know it is. But here's the scary thing. And I don't say this um, to try to guilt you into doing anything. I really have full confidence that God's word does what it does. But I will say this, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I meet Christians who aren't very Christian. I've met more Christians who I actually think they aren't Christian as a pastor than I ever did in the world. That's scary to me. Because a lot of people are just resting in the fact, just as the Jews did, I prayed the prayer and not living in any way different than the world. Scary. Circumcision means something. It's permanent, it's sacrificial, it's painful, and there's a time when you begin to walk. And the old self is gone and you don't revisit it. Are you tempted to? Sure. 
But where's your hope? Where's your meaning? Where's your purpose? Is it in God and the new life he's given you? Or is it in the old life that you just desperately want to go back to? Verse 10 and 12, we'll close with this. Though these men are not strong enough to enter the battlefield yet because they're healing up and they're really sore, they are strong enough to celebrate the Passover. It doesn't just come out of the blue. It's all connected. Here we go. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of land, unleavened cakes, and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. According to Exodus 12, the Passover, the first Passover took place. Circumcision was a requirement to participate in Passover. So it's a good bet, because the last time it's recorded is Numbers 9, as they haven't celebrated Passover for some time. Maybe they have, it's not clear. But they are... This time celebrating in their own land, in the territory of a defeated enemy that's not quite defeated yet. But like the first Passover, they celebrate trusting that God is going to give them victory, not based on the odds, not based off what they think will work out, but based off what God has said. That's the exact same thing that happened. If you don't know, the Passover came or was instituted at a time right before the final plague in Israel. And God said, I'm going to come through and I'm going to kill the firstborn everything. And the only way Israel you'll survive is you slaughter a lamb. It has to be a particular kind of lamb. Put blood above your door. Feast on this lamb and I will come through and you will be saved because of the blood of the lamb. Hadn't happened yet. So they had to go do it though. Believing that God was going to make good on his promise. And the Passover, now as we see him do this, it Again, they're doing it now, 40 years, having gotten manna and food, only for 40 years, falling from the sky, pretty much. And now is the first time that they're doing it, eating of the land, eating of their new life. And so we see the Passover in maybe a more complete picture now. Not only is it the departure from sin, departure from death, and a celebration of that, but it is also an entrance into a new life. And we celebrate this meal together every Sunday. And we must never forget that the entire Bible, I believe, is one story with Jesus as the hero. And we must see it as our story, even if it started as what felt like a Jewish one. And if you go to Joshua 4, verse 19, there's an interesting verse that says when this all begins and this comes together with the Passover. In verse 19 it says, when they came across the Jordan, the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. The tenth day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Or Nisan. And that was the day when they instituted the Passover. God said, here's your new day. You're starting a new calendar when he instituted the Passover. This is the first day of the first month of your new calendar for you. Jews still follow this calendar for their, for their culture and religion today. And on the 10th day of Nisan, God, by God's command, he said, you are to go and find the lamb that you will sacrifice for this Passover. And so they would find it. And on the 14th day, by his command, they would slaughter the lamb at twilight or at nightfall. So the 10th day, the day that they crossed over the Jordan, 
was a day of preparation. And it was a day where they went out to get the lamb, declaring that they trusted that God was going to do something, though he hadn't necessarily done it yet. It was a day of faith, if you will, very much. This is the day that they crossed across the Jordan. And it's the same day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the tenth day of Nisan. The people thought he was coming in as the king. And he was actually coming in, presenting himself as the lamb, the perfect lamb, select, selected by God himself to die, to be slaughtered. And he would celebrate on the 14th day of Nisan, the same day that they're celebrating Passover in Joshua here, with his disciples, on the evening he was arrested. And on that evening, here's what he said. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, so they're celebrating this exodus, they're celebrating this entrance, the same thing that they had celebrated for hundreds of years. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured for you, is the new covenant. So as they're celebrating the old covenant, celebrating the promises of God to be God's people, to be their God, to be protector of them, they're celebrating all these promises. He said, here's the new covenant in my blood. This is the way you go into God's family now. This is the way you understand and fulfill the promises of God. It's through me now. And what we see is now, if we start with a Passover there, we say this is somehow a picture of Jesus. The conquest after Joshua is the same conquest that happened at the cross, where Jesus begins and wins the fight against sin and continues to fight it in our lives. And every time you take communion, we are to remember something in particular. There is a cutting off, a breaking from the past. You've got to let the past go. You've got to bury it and quit digging it back up and looking at it either because you're despairing over it or you're romanticizing it. The past is supposed to be cut off, but it's not just a break with our past as we take communion. He says the new covenant. This is the new life. We walk in the newness of life and we remember that our old self, our old life was buried and dead and our new life is supposed to be full of joy where we don't walk around defeated but in the land of a defeated enemy. Victorious, joyful, excited, not knowing exactly how things are going to end up but trusting to follow God. And so faith is not just preparation, it's also possession and doing something. It's not just relationship. I have my relationship with Jesus, it's wonderful. It's actually living for him and doing something. It's not just belief, it's activity. It's moving, it's following, it's obeying. That's what circumcision is. And it's a circumcision of the heart. And I pray that today, as you come to the table, if you come to the table... If you are not a believer in Jesus, do not come to this table until you have confessed that He is Lord. Until you confess that He died in my place on the cross for my sins, that I am raised anew. Then come and enjoy and celebrate that new life and celebrate the death of your old life. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, consider what you're doing. This is not... You either come to the table as an Israelite of the prior generation or the children. 
the prior generation came to the table and walked away and did their own thing. The new generation came to the table and committed to following him. However messy that might look, that was their commitment and their pursuit to the glory of him by his strength and his power. Let's pray. Father God, we declare the beauty of the imagery you've given us, although seemingly strange and maybe foreign to us, Father, gives us a picture of what it means to follow you, what it means to identify with you. And I pray that you will insert that into our hearts. You'll give us an understanding and a love and an appreciation for all that it means to follow you. I pray that following you, Father, will not be duty, but it will be joy. That it will not be out of obligation and guilt, but it will be out of freedom that you've given us and out of a desire to know you more. Father, I pray for those who need comfort, that you will comfort us for the new life they've been given. And for those who need conviction to cut off their old life, I pray you will convict us and bring us together as your family, building or being built together for a dwelling place of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those who have uh, been saved by Jesus, your first act of obedience, if you haven't taken it, is to be baptized. And that is the, so to speak, circumcision, the act, first act of obedience that you can take physically. For those who haven't, I'll just tell you that God does not intend you to live under the reproach of your past. Whether it be addiction or, or some story of brokenness we all have, he intends that to be cut off and to be buried with him and to be risen again. We'll finish with Colossians 2, which tells us, And you who were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father God, I pray you will help us to live not defeated lives, Father, but lives knowing that we live in the land of a defeated enemy, victorious, full of life, joyful, dedicated to you. May you be glorified by everything we think, say, and do. In the blood of your Son we pray. Amen. Go in grace.